0: probably one of the differences between me and maybe your typical bank economist is that i've been working in property uh, so i didn't start
1: in economics i started in property welcome to get invested on the property hub podcast channel the leading weekly show to help you unlock your full self-health and wealth potential i'm your host bushy martin and each week i go deep with the best investors experts leaders and founders Find out what it takes to break free from the grind, discover freedom, and live by design. Subscribe now and join me, and get invested in the life you really want. Let's get started. Hi Freedom Fighters. How much do you want and need certainty? And how do you make sense of the world? In our times of exponential change, rapidly growing complexity, and endless information, it seems we all crave for increasing levels of of certainty in order to feel safe and secure about the future. So the greater the level of change, the higher the level of certainty we seem to desire. Now, throughout millennia of evolution, humans have managed to survive and thrive by creating simple mental models and frameworks that have become almost intuitive in order to scan and filter the never ending stream of information that bombards all of our senses. And this allows us to focus on those that are critical to anticipating what's likely to happen and to make the decisions and actions necessary to allow us to survive and prosper as a race. And this has led our subconscious minds to develop perceptual and behavioral biases that almost invisibly guide our thoughts and emotional responses. All of this to help us anticipate the future in order to make good, quick decisions that reinforce our innate need to feel safe and secure through the sense of certainty that this entails. But certainty has never been more under threat with the escalating rate of change in a constantly connected world where the only certainty is more uncertainty. So how do we make sense of this dynamic complexity and continue to safely navigate it? In recent times, the perception of certainty, or might I say misconception, is being offered by an increasing reliance on big data. But is this a panacea or a Pandora's box? And nowhere is this more evident than in the world of property, where every conceivable measurable is being captured in order to justify property decisions. But property conditions and movements are as much about the intangible as they are the tangible, because our behaviors are driven more by our subconscious emotions and our baked in biases than they are by our rational logic which is often used to post-justify the decisions that our subliminal subconscious mind has already made. And applying simple apples for apples commodity market metrics and comparisons to housing and property assets may make for good media, but every home and every street and every suburb is different from every other of the 11 million odd properties in over 15,000 odd suburbs right across the country. So the notion of property markets and a reliance on single correlated cause and effect metrics are a bit of an anathema to me, when we're actually comparing an apple with every other known fruit and vegetable. Yes, they appeal to our need for certainty by creating simple mind models, as they may actually work for a period, but they're unlikely to stand the test of time because the simplification misses or overlooks many elements of the associated dynamic complexity, but they increasingly drive sentiment, which is having a growing impact on property decisions. So instead of becoming preoccupied with forecasting the future and trying to pick tops and bottoms that are actually never known until after the event, I've always played the long game over 15 years or more with patience and persistence and planned for the worst and expected the best by focusing on the consistent underlying fundamentals and mitigating the unknown and uncontrollable risks by just having healthy rainy day reserves. And what's helped with this understanding of the world and its impact on you and property? Quite simply, it's by appreciating economics. And before your mind shuts down because of the negative associations you may attribute with the boring and apparently irrelevant economic jargon that you hear in the sound bites on the nightly news, I'm talking about economics in the context of understanding scarcity, by studying how we use resources and respond to incentives, as well as a study of decision-making and behavioral economics. Because in reality, Economics is a very broad discipline that helps us understand historical trends, interpret the headlines, and make much better informed predictions about what's likely to happen in order to address our world's most important issues from the macro to the micro right down to the micro. And while a lot of economists sadly get somewhat of a bad rap because forecasting the future and explaining it is in easily comprehensible terms, is as bad as easy and accurate as predicting the weather given the level of variable dynamic complexity. Good economics helps you to better understand our world and help us to make better informed decisions so that we can invest our time, energy and money much more wisely. So today we're joined by one of those good economists, Dr. Cameron Murray, who's an author who brings fresh economic thinking into this often staid rationalist industry. As you're about to hear over the next two episodes, As we first unpack his personal journey and philosophies before deep diving into the world of economics next week, Cameron specialises in property and housing, environmental economics and corruption, which really spikes my curiosity. And he also dabbles in just about everything else from macro to money to institutions to evolutionary economics and much more. So welcome and let's get invested, Cameron. Thanks for having me, Bushy. Cameron, I'm uh, really looking forward to this exercise. Uh, as I've, I guess I already uh, outlined, uh, economics, I think, gets a pretty bad rap uh, in in Australia generally, but in property in particular. So to sort of kick things off and, and really draw the line on the sand there, can you sort of run us through uh, what you do differently and why you do what you do, Cameron?
0: Yeah, I think probably one of the differences between me and maybe your typical bank economist is that, I've been working in property, uh, so I didn't start in economics, I started in property. If you can believe it, I tried to sell real estate for a while thinking that there was easy money to be had, got my real estate agent's license and was the world's worst real estate agent for a year (laughs) and realized that actually the interesting part is not Um, You know, selling for people. The interesting part is the investment and the market and the, you know, the details of property as an asset. And so uh, I ended up doing a valuation property economics degree and ended up working in a listed property uh, development company for a while. Um, And so that was sort of my transition at the same time i was investing in property personally so i've unlike your typical economist i start with the sort of practical on the ground and, and as you said in the introduction every property is unique and so yeah it's great to have these metrics but you can still outperform the market with the right property with the right local conditions Um, And so I I was very aware of that. And so I guess what I do differently is is my perspective is a little bit deeper in terms of those details. And then I try and bring the the, the big and powerful economic concepts to those practical details that I've experienced rather than just sort of sticking with my head in the clouds with these high-level concepts, which can be powerful, but if you've missed a key detail, um, might send you down the wrong path. So that's probably where I think uh, I differ from many economists.
1: Yeah, well said. I, and it's more a, a bottom-up than a top-down uh, growth path that I think you've taken, which means you've got your hands dirty in the trenches, mm. uh, you understand the nitty gritties, and then you've recognised the need to understand much, much broader concepts. What, what was it that, uh, you know, jumping from being a, a real estate agent effectively into uh, the economics world is quite a leap that I don't think would happen very often. What was it that attracted you to the the world of economics in that context?
0: Yeah, so probably it was, uh, my dad was a bit of a casual real estate investor all through my childhood. So I spent a lot of weekends uh, fixing up houses with him and arguing about, you know, uh, lifting and carrying and hammering and doing all those things. So uh, I guess I was... Uh, immersed in it from a young age, and um, and I, I'd started an engineering degree, and realised that engineering's kind of boring, and it's just not easy money to be made uh, when you first start out. So, and I was this was in the early two thousands, right? Just before property took off, uh, it was taking off in Sydney, but just before it was taking off in Brisbane, and I just thought there are pe- people making a year's salary just trading houses. Um, maybe that's <laughs> where the money is. So, so uh, you know, then then I tried my hand at real estate and realized that actually, um, you know, you want to be involved with development and investment more deeply, not not the sales. And, and so that's sort of the path I took. And and after a while, I I went further into net economics. Uh, I'd worked in a couple of property developers. I worked in the government. Um, dealing with, um, what were they called? Infrastructure charges and those sorts of uh, policies. Yep. And and it's a funny story because uh, I was getting involved with economics and I I was getting very frustrated. Um, I'd worked in the government for a while after being in property development. We had our first child, um, got a sort of stable job and I was really frustrated with it. So I uh, decided I'd actually do medicine and i i said to my wife i'd like to get up every day and do something useful for the world <laughs> and and working in the government and dealing with policy arguments just wasn't cutting it yeah and uh so i i did i studied for the GAMSAT, the entrance test and i aced it and i got accepted to medical school uh, but then i hosted paul friders who was a professor at uh, uq at the time for an economics society event and afterwards we stayed there drinking and I was like yeah economics is just nonsense <laughs> I'm gonna go and do medicine and by the end of the night we decided that I could do a PhD in economics and do something useful and practical and so I gave up my medical sp- school spot and and started a PhD in economics well, that's a pretty, so, pretty pivotal um, conversation you had sort of... uh, right there clearly yeah, yeah it was. Well, you know, I, I I did a lot of research as well. I had a few doctor friends and I, you know, spoke to all of them and one of them organized for me to go on an observership and follow them around at the hospital and see what it's like. And I spoke to the hospital careers person. So I did my research as well and and it was all pointing to, yeah, it's a pretty hard slog with young kids at home. Um so yeah, I did the PhD and and that result of that was the book Game of Mates about grey corruption. So I was very interested at the time in why in the government everything seems so politically sensitive rather than just getting on with the job, and and so that was what I did in my PhD. And anyway, here we are years later. <laughs>
1: well, there's uh, applying that uh, game of mates exercise to the property arena has a, a there's some. Ripple effects there that, uh, in terms of the mindset, uh, that have and do have an influence. So, while we're talking about it, can you expand a bit on mm-hmm. that?
0: Yeah. So, one of the, one of the interesting um, decisions in in property is is how we regulate property, right? And so, in lots of areas of the economy, we regulate. You know, what royalties do you pay when you mine? How do you get an approval? What are your obligations? Um, and in property, we do this through the planning system quite often, as well as the building, you know, codes. And there is a game to be had from getting the rules changed in your favour, just like there is in every sector. But I did recall uh, from my time in property that you know a lot of the game is buy something that's going to get upzoned, uh, because you know that's essentially uh, an extra property right for you that you didn't have to buy. And so one of the one of the research studies I did was looking in Queensland uh, in the early in the two thousands, a new body was created, the Urban Land Development Authority, that had the power to take planning regulations, planning controls away from the councils and fast track and upzone and do whatever it did. And the shapes of these areas that they took control of were very unusual. And I thought that's kind of weird to draw it that way. So it's a little bit like gerrymandering for political electorates, but for upzoning areas. And so I got the property records from all the property owners inside and outside those areas. The ones just outside, it could have been upzoned but weren't. And the ones inside. And I thought, can I predict who got the upzoning from, for example, political donations or their social network. And after scraping all the corporate records and a database of former politicians and the lobbyist register and the donations register, I came up with a sort of social network of 12,000 entities and 250,000 relationships. And it turned out that you could fairly easily predict where that boundary of that upzoning was drawn between whose properties based on where the property owner was in the social network so how well connected they were and what was super interesting is that these same metrics of centrality they're called like how well connected you are can predict in organized criminal gangs who earns the most from being a gang member so their their wealth in the criminal gang is proportional to their centrality in the social network. And it was true in Queensland that well-connected property owners always got inside the rezoning decision, not never left just outside. They were all the unconnected owners. And we found that the value of those sites with the boundaries drawn around them went up in value $710 million in the first year based on property sales records. So, you know, that was sort of... um, A big interest of mine is, well, we kind of need planning regulations, but planners seem oblivious to the fact that what they're doing is handing out hundreds of millions of dollars to different property owners willy-nilly with every decision. And I've been on a bit of a a program of training planners to understand the economics of what they're doing. Sometimes they make development infeasible. Sometimes they give away valuable upzoning, right? Right. And so, I've been actually recently doing courses for the Planning Institute on property economics, trying to build that knowledge because it's a huge point of contention um, in the day to day administration, but also politically, it's a hot topic because the favors can be very
1: valuable. Yeah, beautiful. So that. <laughs> yeah, I found it really interesting. I spent Seventeen odd years as an architect, and one of my biggest frustrations, uh, Cameron, was uh, uh, having major decisions made on on properties and the the, the shape, appearance, and otherwise of properties at much a more micro level than what you were talking. Mm. But they were influenced by the the local fish and chip shop owner, who was best mates with <laughs> someone else, uh, and it was it was very much about who you knew, not what what you knew. Uh, to get the sort of and I and I, I, I that was part of the reason why I left architecture actually that because the 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 common sense and the the right aspect was being overshadowed mm. by the the relationship uh, aspect but very much along what you're what you're talking about there with the the concept of centrality so where uh, so yeah. uh, and I think it's uh, wherever there's people in those relationships it's going to be very difficult <laughs> I think to um, legislate or to try and uh, control that because that's just human nature what's your thoughts on that
0: yeah so that was sort of the conclusion I got to at the end is that you can't regulate human nature what you can do is accept human nature how it is and and, and to be honest there's a flip side to this social relationship it builds a lot of trust it actually it, it's very efficiency enhancing to trust those people in your well-connected network because, you know, when you cut a deal with them, you don't spend years in the courts afterwards trying to enforce it because, you know, you all work with the same people for years afterwards. You've got to trust them. Yep. So there's a, there's a massive benefit to it. But, of course, politically, you can use that trust to move the hand of government in the favour of certain people as well. So that's sort of a cost on everybody else as well. So, so I guess my conclusion was we can't change people, but what we can have is institutions that price political decisions yep. so that if you give it a favour, someone still has to pay for it if it's got a market value. And we can randomise decision-making or decision-makers so that even if you trust people, you don't know who's making the next, next decision. And those people making the decision don't have any loyalty because they just got randomly put there once and we do this in criminal courts with juries we randomly select the ultimate decision makers because we know if we had professional juries that eventually they'd be seduced into organized crime and everyone would get away with their 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 crimes so we know it works we have good examples of of where we do it when it's important but we miss those key insights in day-to-day regulatory decisions Um, we we sometimes think rotating stuff, for example, from private sector into the regulator is a good idea because it gets this experience. But the flip side of that is it brings those social networks and those social obligations with it as well. Right. So this is why, for example, your judges in criminal courts don't just rotate in and out of private, um, you know, private sector Legal jumps because you've got to sort of insulate those decision makers. So I think there's a lot of lessons there we can apply um, in in many other areas. And it's not about changing people because there's a very good side to trust. It's just about having systems that work really well uh, when people trust each other.
1: Um, and yeah, that's, you know, a, that's we
0: randomise or we price things. Yeah, yeah
1: that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. And, and we'll we'll talk more about that in in part two. Of our uh, conversation because I think in terms of future solutions, there's a lot of merit mm. in, in exactly what you're saying there that has applicability in that aspect. Uh, one thing I'm sort of picking up from what you've shared with us already is that there's a, uh, a lean towards the uh, analytical efficiency is the best word I can or term I can use to mm-hmm. describe it in terms of where where your uh, preferences tend to lead. Uh, yeah, Am I reading that right? And uh, if if that is so, if that's one of your sort of almost core values and beliefs, if you like, uh, uh, how does that continue to influence uh, who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah, so I think you've probably picked up uh, a, a good insight there, Bushy. Um, I, I would say economics training makes people acutely aware of, of inefficiencies of resource use and... Um, you know, everybody's frustrated by paperwork and middle management and terrible rules, but economists are trained to be more, even more <laughs> frustrated. And I think I'm naturally a little bit like that, and I think most people are at the end of the day. Most people just want to do the job. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to tick forms or jump hoops. And you know, we often regulate for the lowest common denominator in these things. So, so I think your experience in architecture was well, what if we get an ugly building? Okay, well, you might get some ugly ones and you might get some amazing ones. Is it okay to just have a mix? And I think, yeah, probably it is because the gain from just the simplicity or the efficiency uh, from not having all those fights and ending up with a mix is probably worth it. But I, I think you're right. In my personal life, I, I'm very, very similar. I'm, I, I would say uh as a young guy cheapskate wouldn't have been too far from the mark (laughs) i think a lot of young guys when they're working hard for their money are very efficient and analytical with their money um and i think only you know it sort of took till i had kids to loosen up on that and go we only live once it's great to be efficient and save and um you know not waste your time and work all, all the time, but you know also there's the life to live as well and so these days what I try and do is I compress the work time so when I work it's really hard hard focused and high value work and when I don't unfortunately I often still think about work so in the shower at the beach I get amazing great ideas but at least I'm you know going to the gym walking the dog on the beach doing other things and sort of trying to to keep the balance so I think I think most people appreciate efficiency and it, for economists it's a much bigger it's a much bigger and more important thing uh, for economists the only reason we're rich is because we've got more efficient right and, and the yeah. biggest probably one of the biggest topics in economics is why are poor countries poor why aren't they all rich why don't they catch up yeah. and the question is well are they do they have rules that don't let them? Uh, do they, are they constrained by international capital flows? Can they not get finance? Can they, are there political, you know, grey corruption that is undermining actual capital investment? These are the huge questions economists have. So I think I'm just a small part of that. Um, but I definitely probably live that philosophy as well personally. Um you know, economists are renowned for never buying fancy cars. Yeah, because we are very aware of buy a cheap secondhand Toyota and drive it into the ground. That is the most efficient outcome, and we do all our research. Now, I've got a cheap secondhand Mitsubishi, but I'm very close to the mark.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. In in that context, and 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 the perception of economists, which I've sort of alluded to in the intro, introduction. Mm. What do you find that most people misunderstand about you most? Me personally, or economics? Yeah, no, you personally, because we have all of us have a tendency to put people in a box. So if you mention the word economist, as a perception that immediately comes to mind, oh. uh, how does that sit in the in the context of misunderstanding you and what you're about?
0: Yeah, it's it's been hard for me to know at the moment because I've lived this lifestyle for such a long time and I'm so entrenched but uh you know the biggest um the biggest confusion is that economists are not accountants. Uh so we use money as a measure for well-being in you know so when we say we want a bigger GDP we don't want it because we want more dollars in bank accounts. We want it because high GDP means living a long time, higher education, better health outcomes, higher happiness self-reported happiness correlates. So all the good things you want in life. Uh, It's not about the accounts. Even though, hilariously, I was uh, the the treasurer for Sport Climbing Queensland, the uh, Queensland competition climbing and they're like don't worry he's an economist i'm like but i'm not like out; it's (laughs) it's a different thing um so that's probably the main confusion and and i guess the other one is it's all about finance and investment like i don't know what stocks are good or what's going but i understand the big conceptual frameworks around risk and around the substitution of different assets and around the macroeconomy and so I'm really, you know, I'm torn with economics personally. Sometimes I think it's it's terrible. Sometimes I think we we won't update our textbooks and we won't incorporate better views. And then sometimes I think it's great because at least we have a common language and can communicate with each other, where in a lot of other social sciences it's just a word salad of you no know, one's really sure what anyone means, and it's almost entertainment. So, so that's that's where I sit. A bit of a love hate uh, thing at times, and I think people don't, you know, I have pretty broad interests, so I don't think they get me too wrong. I've I've generally can find common ground with people uh, in my economic interests.
1: Well, certainly from a personal perspective, I can connect with having uh, followed you for a while and and listened to your observations. That there's a there's a uh, broader understanding, I, I find, in, in what you're sharing than what I see with uh, some others. But uh, And you've touched on this already, but uh, what do you struggle with then, Cameron? <laughs>
0: uh, time management, switching it off. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I would say because my I'm so analytical all the time, um, you can you can probably should interview my wife after this, uh, <laughs> but just interpersonal, just letting letting things slide, and that's definitely something I'm aware of and at least trying to change. But it's 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 a skill to just be deep in the economics, and you know, just this morning I was um, I was walking and I I just had on my mind this. Um, you know, simulation exercise, and I want to code up, and all I can think of is, oh, God, when can I get a few hours free to sit at the computer and and check this? Whereas, you know, it's nearly Christmas, so I should probably reach out to some friends, shouldn't I? So um, that is that is just a... I, I mean, it's good. Again, it's too, I'm going to be the two-handed economist. It's great for focus, and it's great for ideas, and it's great for communication, but that that is the flip side is 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 managing it and managing yourself so um you know in terms of economics in terms of research in terms of what's happening that's that's all good but it's it's really the juggle that uh and i think i've accepted that life goes in waves so you have periods where it's really intense work and then you you need to switch off for a period and and i think I, I understand
1: it intellectually I just have to have to live it more for sure well and'm I'm, I'm the reason why I'm uh smiling and laughing quietly on the inside is I'm resonating with absolutely everything you just <laughs> uh, I uh, I have this almost obsessive uh, once an idea is in the head I can't let it go and uh, and yes while intellectually I, I understand the need for balance and there's, there's this constant talk about balance uh, yeah. I, I'm, I I Maybe I'm getting old and crusty, but I, I don't know that that is uh, uh, achievable or sustainable uh, depending on on your mindset and your outlook. And uh, if you're – because, you know, when you're do, doing the walk on the beach or what, that's that's often when some of my best ideas come. I'm in the shower mm-hmm. and, I've had this inspiration and I've got this inspiration and I've got to sit down and I've got to get it down as quick as I can before I lose the thread. Uh, so, uh, so I, I, I yeah. think – yeah there's while while we we know that we we need to be doing more balance uh, as the word I'm, I'm not sure whether that works and it's probably more surrounding yourself with people who understand you and and how you operate that can accommodate that than than uh, trying to completely change who you are and i, and I guess that's a a good segue into uh, mm-hmm. something else i want to ask you cameron is you know what challenging event in your life has brought about your greatest learnings and your best changes?
0: Um, good question. G- greatest challenges. Um, yeah. Uh, probably. Uh, probably having kids was the... So we were young had uh, unplanned first pregnancy and both studying and just um, in terms of perspective, it's very useful. Um, I used to take our first son and take him to uni, uni and put him on the floor on his play mat next to my computer. Um, yeah, I, so... I guess it was a bit of a shock and a challenge and then uh, it sort of forced me to grow up in terms of a level of maturity. So, you know, as a young guy, nothing in life is too serious or important, you know. It's easy to go and make some money, go on a trip here, do whatever you want. But this was a sort of step up in maturity, responsibility. Uh, In terms of managing money, it was all very oh actually there's a reason now (laughs) to be more cautious with the money so I don't know if it was not a challenge in terms of you know running a marathon or anything like that where it's just you do it and you push yourself it's it was more of a uh, emotional maturity challenge for me Um, and I think most guys go through this my I have two sons and they're teenagers now and you can you can see them going through that emotional learning as well, and it's very difficult. But I think for guys, it lasts—you know—it lasts another all through your twenties as well. And um, so, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if I look back at myself in my early twenties, uh, I'd have a lot of words of wisdom <laughs> <laughs> uh, for myself. Uh, so that's that's probably
1: the big picture one uh, yeah. I can think of now. Yeah, no, that's spot. And I, I think guys generally, actually, while they won't admit it, have a have a a real challenge with the responsibility for others. I and I get I'm probably talking more for myself here than anything else because that's certainly something that that I also struggled with uh, uh, many years ago now, but uh, it's something that really flipped the lid for me in terms of. What I was doing, where I was heading, and and how I needed to actually uh, respond, given that added responsibility for someone's else else's life, which I you yeah. know at the time. But you, you've touched on a couple of things, and, and again, it's uh, there's an assumption around economists uh, having their head around money, uh, and and the relationship with money. What does money mean to you, Cameron?
0: Yeah. So money. Uh- <laughs> It's funny, people I know people who have household budgets and different, you know, apps for saving and this and that. I don't have any of that. And my attitude is now, I guess when I was young and it was all about make money and invest and focus. Now it's well, you know, money is just there to be spent. That's what money is for. <laughs> and I don't know if it's having kids that you realize the money when you're single and you're young money can just come in and you can hold it because you don't have many expenses and then you've got a whole family and it's just a pipeline it just flows straight through and so my relationship now is well i'm going to spend everything i earn so i'll just stop when there's no money left and wait for more money and then just keep going like i don't know you know as an economist i guess people assume i've got this budget and i've got this this and and yeah i've got a bit of a long term you know we've bought our house and this a long term thing and i've got super so i'm an economist i'm like i don't have to buy shares i've got super someone's doing it for me yeah so my attitude now is it's just a, it's just the money pipe if we do spend on something we won't spend on something else yeah. and and i guess my wife has probably forced me to realize that <laughs> she's like well you just want to spend on that i just want to spend on that we're just going to spend on something right and so that's my attitude now. I just earn money, go, comes in one end, goes out the other. And as long as I've got a fairly mature view of what I value in life, so I think that's probably something that takes a while to learn. People, yeah, think, and what is oh, that? Been- yeah, let's talk
1: about that. What, what and, and it does change and evolve over time. So, what do you value now, and, and how's that changed uh, if you look back on your journey so far?
0: So, for example, when I was young, I wouldn't go out to a fancy restaurant or I wouldn't even eat nice food because I'm like, it's just calories. Like, what difference does it make? I, I I chew it for 20 seconds, it's gone. <laughs> um, and now I'm like, oh, actually, meals are this great social event where you hang out and you you do all this stuff and it, it's fun and it doesn't matter if it costs a bit more money. It's actually I enjoy the event of dining out and, you know, chatting and trying the wine and uh and, and maybe that's again an age thing but it's also just uh I didn't value it because I thought I it's like you know when you're a teenager you pre-drink before you go out for drinks because it's efficient <laughs> <laughs> I would just pre-eat I'm like oh spaghetti good fill up the tank oh we're gonna have something fancy I'll just have a taste uh, so just appreciating things um I still don't value clothes and cars and stuff that a lot of people spend money on. But we do travel. So we took the kids skiing in Japan earlier this year. Um, I I really value, like, life events, big birthdays, weddings, all those big get-togethers and celebrations. Um, So those I value. We just got back from a week at the coast with my brother's family. We all shared a house and so... That's kind of, I think most people see that, but but for me the the difference in value between that and buying a fancy car or fancy clothes is probably much more extreme. In fact, at my website I have a um, a, an article where I literally documented roughly what we spend on different categories of expenditure each year to match the ABS consumer price index weights. So, for example, your typical house spends twelve percent on clothes and. You, you know, eight percent on insurance or whatever the numbers are, and I compared our house to see how abnormal it was. Yeah, um, and and ours is very, very high on entertainment and recreation and holidays, and kind of low on transport and clothing, as you can imagine.
1: Yeah. So yeah, what I'm hearing is you're more about experience than things, uh, and and I think there's a, there's always an evolution with that when we. And yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I know when I was young, uh, I, I needed to look successful. So it was all about the things that I could show that made me successful. Uh, if I if I roll through just to now, I couldn't. It, it's about uh, more life and less stuff uh, for me now. Yeah. So there's been a massive shift in that, and the experiences that you you've just shared with us are, are much more important to me than what they were then. So we uh, it sounds like we're similar there. I, I I now want to yeah. sort of transition, if we can, Cameron, into your personal investment journey? Because, again, you've sort of alluded to yeah. it uh, during the conversation. And I'd, I'd love you to take us through that, starting with, you know, why did you decide to invest at all? What triggered your interest? And in, and what were some of the initial fears and, and concerns that you might have had before you actually uh, dove in?
0: Well, yeah, as I said, my dad was a bit of a keen investor. And so, actually, these. The, when, when my dad was 50 he had uh, throat cancer and decided that um, he needed to set us kids up for life financially uh, that was you know one of his his goals and so he uh he gave us thirty thousand dollars each and said buy a house that will that's what you need to do and this was um 2002 sort of period yeah just luckily just before the boom in brisbane uh, which is where i live yeah and well at the time it still seemed very expensive um but you know went through the process of borrowing money and finding a mortgage broker and just learning the paperwork and administration that side of (laughs) doing it it's not just like uh you know it's it, there is a process to it all, right? And yeah. and that's what got me started. And and conveniently, uh, it was right before the Brisbane boom. Not that anyone knew that was coming. <laughs> so I can't really take any credit for the timing there, but uh it turned out that um it seemed like easy money because prices were just going up. So I tried to leverage and buy some more property and ended up in the early 2000s, buying three houses in a block of land in very cheap places in Queensland. So Ipswich, Brisbane, Rockhampton. And I don't know if you know Russell Island, but oh, a yeah. block of land on Russell Island was uh, for $3,000 nice. in the 2000s. They're only $40,000 now, by the way. If anyone wants to retire to a beautiful island, a short ferry ride from Brisbane, um yeah, yeah I'm surprised. I, I
1: would have thought they would have been uh, a lot more expensive than that. So uh, I guess it's just the, the separation and the, the infrastructure uh, challenge. Well, I mean,
0: a completed house is around 250000 there. Mm. And
1: so, yeah, it makes sense if you spend a couple hundred
0: thousand on a, a sort of cheap house. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, this, uh, well, uh, I want to get onto that in a moment because maybe when we talk about the, the policy debate around housing, People forget that there are cheap houses in this country. They're just not in Sydney. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, so that was my sort of uh, start of my investment journey. I did sell a couple of houses, and I don't know if I ever was um, too worried about it, just because of the timing was good, and so I got a little bit bailed out with the capital gains early on. Yeah. Nothing happened, of course, between two 2000- thousand. Six and 2019. Yeah, I could have sold everything in 2006 and had the same amount of cash as 2019 in yep. Queensland. So we forget also that um, there wasn't you know, a lot of <laughs> price appreciation for more than a decade. Yep. Um, and so that, that was sort of my um, introduction to it all. Obviously, at the time I was working in real estate and property development, and so very entrenched in. You know, where do you get value in the market? How to, how, why do things go up in value? Um, very much starting the thought processes on all those questions that I think I've got a very good handle on today. So I don't think I was ever too worried. my My dad was super helpful, and he always made sure I had uh, landlords' insurance because I didn't live in any of these places. Yeah, which which <laughs> really helped. Uh, I had a place at Ipswich that I rented to an organisation that um, housed well, the children of pe- people who were in jail. Um, so I had carers and they rented a bunch of houses where, you know, their carers would take the children. Yep. And um, it worked out really well for a few years until one of the kids started stealing the neighbors' cars and smashing up the house and pulling the fence palings off and starting bonfires and, and the last straw was when they snuck away, leaving the bathtub filling, and no one turned the tap off, and the the uh, drain in the bathroom was covered by a mat. And so hours later, when they came home, the whole house had been flooded. And so I had to, you know, I had all the experiences, I had to fix everything up, I had to chase the insurance company, they didn't want to pay, I had to have an argument, and all that's fine. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I was made whole at the end and sold that place. Um, But I don't think I was ever too worried because I think my dad was, you know, had a bit of experience and was always double checking on me. Um,
1: (laughs) Is that a mentor uh, in in that context as well? But uh, you probably, definitely, you you probably already uh, summed this up. But uh, if you look back on, and particularly on your property part of the journey, uh, Mm. what's been uh, your best and worst investment in that context and and what have you learned from each of those
0: um uh look pro- probably the worst was that one um just because I should have sold it way earlier <laughs> uh went through went through years of grief without actually making any extra money uh the best one was probably the first one I bought when I was 19 in in Brisbane that I just sold before COVID. Again, not great timing um, (laughs) right before the boom, Um, but I sold it um, just before Christmas in 2019. But luckily in 2020, I bought the house we live in now. So during COVID, I was very, uh, like we were cashed up and ready to to buy. During COVID, I was actually really worried. People thought prices were going to fall, and interest rates were already, I thought, pretty reasonable in 2019. You could get a yeah. three point something percent interest rate and yields were yeah. still five exactly. percent in a lot of places. Yeah. And then they dropped even further, you could get a two point something in mortgage. I just thought no one, there's nothing for sale, no one's panicking, and interest rates are low. How can prices go down? Yeah. And so I was really in a rush to buy something and, and we did. Um but I remember I was on a podcast in in May in 2020, right when the bank economists were saying, oh, prices might fall 30% nationally. And I said in that podcast, prices are more likely to rise 20% than fall 20% because of the low interest rates. And I said, if you look historically, uh, high unemployment is, is not a... It doesn't correlate with falling house prices. It's just not a thing. Uh, pe- why are people saying it? It's just look at the record. Yeah. And uh, and people said to me, where did you get your degree? The back of a Cornflakes packet? All this sort of stuff, right? And, of course, 12 months later, uh, all those guys that got it wrong were now explaining why prices went up. And uh, so luckily, luckily I didn't wait too long, cashing out at the low in 2019 before getting back in um so yeah i guess i guess that's my story i don't i I don't think there are any super terrible things and i guess that's perspective right i think when you first when you first start investing in property a lot of people expect miracles very quickly
1: they expect linear yeah in my experience they expect this linear uh, curve, but if you, if you actually, and you would have done more research on this than I have, but mm. uh, research that I've done that would 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 suggest, you know, over the last forty-five or fifty odd years that things tend to go on almost a sort of an S curve, but it, but it varies by location. But, you know, yeah. one precinct right next to another can be going through a completely different uh, growth cycle than the others, and it's not not unusual for you know property values to go. F- Flatline for you know five to eight years or more, and then they have a have a spike in growth, and then then they might even come back slightly before they then extend out. So uh, I think you know you, you know the stats that fifty four percent of first time investors sell a property within the first five years, and I I think that's about expectations as much as anything because they have this they they often buy when prices have just gone through their their major yeah. spike. Uh, and then they yeah. see the values just flatline for a period when they're expecting this sort of linear year-on-year growth. Uh, it's just they're just thinking and, and looking at it the wrong way.
0: I agree. I think because I worked in real estate and I knew a lot of old guys who'd been in real estate, and they're always talking about the cycle's picking up and the cycle this, and then in property development, everyone's aware of the cycle. You don't want to miss the cycle, right? You got to be prepared for. I was, I was not. um I guess I learned that lesson fairly early. I didn't didn't sort of have to um, learn it firsthand by losing a lot of money or anything like that. (laughs) So that was very lucky.
1: Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, Cameron, what does financial independence mean to you?
0: Yeah, so that's, I guess, that's been, uh, how would I put it? That's been a sort of life um, objective, principle, philosophy of mine since I was young is since my, sort of my dad got me investing is oh, wow, I can actually not have to have a nine-to-five job and if I lose it, I'm okay for a few months because I've got this asset buffer, I've got a line of credit, or, you know, I can actually do what I want, not what pays. And so that's been really great for me, having that flexibility, um, being able to do a PhD. um, And now I guess I'm trying to make the most of that again and start my own sort of one-man think tank, fresh economic thinking. Um, The last four years I did work for the University of Sydney, which is great. Um, But now I feel like I can do my own thing and I can, yeah, I can do that partly because of 20 years uh, of investing in property and, you know, not buying new cars all the time and things like that. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, in life, you can do things for money every day or you can do things that you want every day and work out how to make money. And I think the second choice is a lot better and that's what I've, been trying to do as much as I can Uh, but you can really only do that if you can manage your money if your spending needs are low and you can invest and you can have a savings buffer that allows you to live that better life so when they get up in the morning you're not just oh I've got to put my alarm on and drag myself out and work for the man and deal with you know deal with stupid meetings or whatever every day, you know, everyone's got those frustrations, um, but you want to minimise them and and having the freedom to do it. I think it's 2023, right? We should have as many people as we can doing the things they want and they enjoy each day and minimise the people just having to do things for money. And I, I think we're getting there. Like if you compare, if you look historically, we're at the best point in history in terms oh. of that but, but I I wanted to personally make sure I was I was doing it. and so um, yeah I I think it's been really good and, and now that my kids are in high school I I do wonder how much education in this financial literacy, financial management financial independence they get um it's it's an interesting one. I definitely know my kids are good at spending money. Uh, uh, but uh, i have i have really noticed my eldest has a job now and he he when he's earned the money it's super valuable (laughs) when i give him the money i'll just buy whatever (laughs) um so yeah i i I would like to pass it down but i think it's it's a it's a life lesson and, and you know getting slightly off topic i really think um uh, some people just never know what that is to be financially independent, to be in a household that's more financially independent. Yeah. But I really wish we could um, teach it more widely and have more people experience it. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. Doesn't mean you don't have to work hard. But you don't have to do things you don't like every day. You can work hard at things that sort of pique your interest. Even if you're a builder or a trader, oh, you start your own business. You try this. You do this. Oh, you become a specialist in that. Like you still work hard, but you you. You can sustain an interest,
1: well, and and to have the autonomy, to have the freedom of time and choice, uh, in terms of fulfilment that that flows from those. Uh, and again, you'd know this way uh, more than I would, but I know from my personal experience uh, when we hit financial independence, and suddenly I was I was working because I wanted to, not because I had to. The 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 mental shift you 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 can't put a dollar value on that. Uh, to be honest, in terms of your outlook and enjoyment of life from that point. And, and yeah. I guess, again, uh, slightly uh, leveraging off that, uh, yeah. uh, can I get you to paint us a picture of your ideal uh, lifestyle and life vision and in association with that? What's your uh, investment strategy uh, to both attain and maintain uh, that if you're – it sounds like you're probably doing it already, but uh, can you share that with us?
0: Yeah, so, I guess, in terms of overall uh, principle or or lifestyle, um, yeah, I, I think i'm I'm living it in a way. Uh, let me let me just go on a bit of a tangent here. When we talk about superannuation, we're all about save, 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 and then boom, retire at sixty five or sixty seven. But I think the better lifestyle is to save, spend, do what you want. Save, spend, do what you want, and have many, many retirement periods or career changes, or um, you know, just um, do the things you want when you can physically enjoy them. And so I think that's sort of what I've done. I've worked in real estate. I've studied. We've um, you know had various different breaks, and um, I think. You know the the lifestyle i want is now the one i have where i'm working for myself and um i'm flexible i can go to the gym i can take the dogs out i can have a day off i can catch up with my friends um but my mind still ticks over and i can still have those periods of focus so yep. so that's how it is how do i do it well um yeah i I guess when when I was studying my PhD, we did draw down on, on the uh the mortgage for one of the investment properties for a couple of years. But to be honest, it's it's not so much. If you're earning a little bit, you're just topping up a little bit and you've bought yourself a few years of doing what you want. And um, and so now I've got no investment properties in a house that's um nearly paid off. So paying off the house saves you a lot of money. And um, and of course, I can redraw out of out of that as a buffer as well. So that's, you know, it's not complicated. Um, it's really not that complicated. It's yeah. just um you've gotta have, you've gotta, I guess accumulate appreciating assets is the the, and I've done that and now it's it's the house and the super, and that's probably okay.
1: Yeah, well, you have you, used those assets as enablers for your lifestyle, which is yeah. which is a and sort of coming back to your point around retirement, I I'm right with you there. It's it, because it's like an on-off switch retirement. Whereas for me and my wife and I, we we talk about rewirement, not retirement, because we we're, right. we're just uh, transitioning and changing what we do in in line with both our interests and our ability, uh, which is a which is a, a much more enjoyable uh, way of life. And and if you look at the stats on those who retire, you know, it, it may have changed, but uh, some years ago I looked at this. So uh, there was three out of five males were dead within, within five years of retirement uh, because suddenly they've got no purpose in life. And uh, I think the key here is if you're pursuing your interests and that gives you the purpose and you're making uh, – at helping others and the fulfilment that flows from that, then that that's something you can do as long as your heart keeps beating. So, um... Um, yeah, totally, totally with you there. And I think even if you have a physical job
0: when you're young, you can you know evolve into other things when you're older. I've got uh, I've got a good mate who's a builder, and he's just he's thinking of what what comes next and whether he you know trains other people, starting a different sort of business in the in the area. Um, where he's seen as a bit of a market so I, I think it's this you know that that's the way it should be right um the whole idea of work for the man for 30 years and retire or 40 years it's sort of not how it happens and I think most uh, I'm, I'm very satisfied that more and more people think this way yeah. um which which is great and uh, I think you know, we're a rich country at the richest point in history. It's probably a good thing to, to get from <laughs> from that.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think the, the thing that uh, there's a misnomer, I think, that people uh, who embed themselves in employment and, and almost convict themselves to lifetime employment, Uh, They think that there's there's more safety and security in that one. If you actually look at the stats, given where the world's heading, what's happening, there's more safety and security in working for yourself and driving your own race than there is on the reliance on the paycheck from someone else because that paycheck may well not be there next week. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so I find I think that's a
0: cultural thing, right? People mis misunderstand the risk of working for someone else versus yourself because someone else is working for themselves and they're paying you, so you've got the second <laughs> second chance on on their their business's income. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that, that is a you know uh, you know large institutions, obviously, um, you know universities where I've worked, government departments and stuff, and yeah. very large companies are, are less risky, but yeah. Um, it's, it is still a risk and you know these companies downsize and adjust on a whim with a new ceo and a new competitor all of a sudden yeah your risk-free job is up in the air
1: spot on spot on so if, if we uh, sort of bring this to a close if we reflect back on your journey so far Ken, mm. if, if you're starting out again what what if anything would you invest in differently and That's again, when I say investment, I'm not just talking about property. I'm talking about investing your time, your energy, your money, your interests. Uh, what, if anything, would you do differently? Look,
0: I, I, I'm an optimist and I'm also very forgetful, as my friends will tell you. So for me, I'm just like, everything was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I learn from things and adjust. So, so maybe I'll, I'll consider it as maybe what what would i try and pass down to my kids who are starting yeah. Yeah. the journey very soon um and i think um it's a good very good question i think i'd just pass on my same advice my you know my kids have had a similar experience fixing up houses with me when they were little fixing up at our house um understanding investing talking openly with us about money so i think they've had a good grounding and yeah i think i would say just just start just start investing a little while your costs are low and work hard find stuff you're interested in i think what i've what we've i i chat to my wife and i chat to my family and my brothers and sisters about this and i think yeah, what advice do you give a teenager in 2023 who's about to <laughs> finish high school and embark on the world? And I think it's it's probably don't stand still. Yeah. Be trying something, even if because you're not going to learn if you like something or you don't or what your interests are by doing nothing. Just start, participate, do do it as best you can. And if you realize there's no future in it or no interest, then Keep keep moving to the next thing. So that's probably the highest level advice I think I could give in terms of money. Uh, I'll be on their back making sure they invest and they're not you know borrowing money to buy a new uh, sports car at age nineteen or anything like that.
1: Yeah, no, great advice. That's the generational, your your father speaking through you, which, and I had a very similar experience. Exactly. My, my father, uh, I remember when I was at school, all my mates want, wanted cars, and I, I kept saying to mum and dad, uh, Dad, can I get a car? And my dad would always say, Son, you can have any car you like just as soon as you saved up the, the money to buy it and yeah. uh, that 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 the discipline of having to do it yourself and the respect that the, you then give to the asset when you finally have yeah. hands on it because you appreciate it uh which is the same advice I give my son by the way uh, yeah. no, but the but the uh habits and the discipline that build up as a result of that uh I I, I think they're their life skills that uh, you know you, you you just can't can't ignore so I think uh, that, that time yeah. that advice from generations that, that flows through yeah. is, is the best possible I, I, boss. I just
0: don't think this, that that is sort of timeless, isn't it? I don't, it is. I don't think it would have been a problem 100 years ago. Try something, work hard at it, spend less than your own, don't just waste your money on showboating things. Would have worked 100 years ago as well, um, for sure. And I think I, I'll give you a little bit of a positive insight there on the next generation, and, and maybe we'll talk more about the sort of media hype around, oh, the next generation's useless at everything, which is of course as old as the hills. Um at my boys' school, everyone wants to start a business. They all want uh, to they're reading business books. They are wow. they want to be the next somebody with the next new thing. And I, you know, I'm very much encouraging yeah. them and um yeah, so there's very much this can-do attitude out there. It's right. obviously not everywhere, but I just wanted to leave with this. We're talking about the generational advice. that Yeah, old advice is good, but don't worry. A lot of youngsters are going to go out and do it themselves anyway because they are motivated. And I think they've seen, you know, they look up to guys like Elon Musk and they just think, well, he just started a business. I'm going to do that for whatever.
1: Yeah. Um love it that, that's very encouraging and and, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that because while as you mentioned before and i agree with you i think the educational system uh, needs to embed uh you know a, a framework for how to manage money and and how to invest it yeah. on their piece yeah. it actually takes the the pressure off at of the other end uh, when uh super is not enough and the, the welfare system through through pensions which aren't going to be there forever uh, uh needing to be the safety net if if we're putting the energy into the front end and giving them the skills then we don't mm-hmm. need that that massive uh, uh safety blanket at the end. So uh, brilliantly said. I, I I now want to switch into what I commonly and affectionately refer to as the ambush round, uh Cameron, uh, where yeah. I get the old blindfold and cigarette and ask you the sort of fast forward questions that you get asked on, on every podcast. And uh, the first yeah. of those, which is feels like a bit left field, but it tells us a bit about you and your thoughts. What's your favorite song and why? <laughs> Look, I don't know if I have one favorite, but I'll tell you what
0: i often return to as a favorite is bohemian rhapsody and the reason is when i was younger i just wanted to learn that song on the piano it's got some really nice sections in it and and it took me years and i did and so now it's kind of that my go-to thing if i want to just play the piano and unwind i'll play the first few parts until the the I
1: see a little silhouette over yeah. there. When I get to that part, I kind of give up. But um... but, but you yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm a closet pianist myself, uh, Cameron. And yeah. uh, you know, I, I, Freddie Mercury was a it was a very talented individual who came up with some sensational uh, music during that real housey period uh, for rock around the world. I think so. That, that's a a classic. Uh, yeah, slightly different. Uh, subject. what superpower do you wish you had and why? Oh
0: uh, look I think I'll just bring out my inner child and go for the super superman's flying power. Um just you know isn't it always you just feel like one day oh, wouldn't it be great to just fly like that? I, I look at birds it's every too- day
1: and go, I wish I wish I could do that. I've I've done that I mean, since I was uh, you know, it's, it's a
0: close contest, but um I, I'm just gonna pick that one because I, I remember being little and thinking, gee, that's amazing. And probably I remember you know pretending that you could do that.
1: Yeah, um, yeah I love it. I love it. If uh, it's again a different topic altogether. If you could have coffee with anyone, either dead or alive, who would you choose and why?
0: Um you know, I'd, I'd probably try and find someone in my family history. Um, there is a... Uh, my my grandfather and my mother's side did a lot of family history and found that we can trace our line back to King Henry seventh or something, not the 8th. Oh. Um, and so probably... Just out of curiosity, going back to that sort of era, to someone who I can look and go, "Wow, okay." Eventually, <laughs> um, your your bloodline creates me. Just, just I mean, I, there's heaps of others, but um uh, that's just one that comes to mind now. Yeah,
1: love it, love it. Um, my good father traced the family tree back, and it uh, was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, we would learn stuff that we never would have known and and some of my grandmother uh, didn't like some of the history because she had this vision that we were sort yeah. of uh, English purists and the aristocracy. Uh, <laughs> where We are actually yeah, at the opposite yeah. end. But, no, it's uh, never the case, is it?
0: Everyone's a mix of everything. Uh, it gives you a bit of an appreciation for humanity
1: as, as well, that you realise that probably, you know, if you go up far enough, we're all cousins at the end of the day. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Uh, this one, the last one's a, a bit of an interesting one. Uh, what would be the title of the book about you, if your worst enemy wrote it?
0: Oh, uh, my worst enemy, it'd be something like the disingenuous pretend leftist fake alt-right, something like that. So I get criticised from the left and the right on social media. So if you're on Twitter, at Dr Cameron Murray, D-R Cameron Murray, and uh, the left hates me because during covid i thought well you know what locking everyone down doesn't seem like a medical intervention and we should look at the economic costs and of course people thought that meant we wanted to kill grannies but you know the economics as i said earlier it's not about the money it's about the thing that you get from being in a rich functioning society and that thing is well-being happiness longevity all those things and so if it wasn't the case, we wouldn't have to go to work every day and we'd still be rich and still be happy. And, but that's not true. Yeah. So the left, uh, left and right, I think, don't have any meaning, but people hate me for that. They call me the alt right and then the right thinks I'm a crazy lefty because I think we should have a public housing system and that it's okay for the government to do things yeah. and build things. Um, and we really like it when they do, right? When the government fixes up your street or there's a new thing going on in the city, everyone loves it. Um, yet people think I'm a crazy lefty communist for that. So that that, that, <laughs> <laughs> that would be the, the book.
1: Well, yeah, that's that's good because I and I, I guess, uh, you know, again, I agree with everything you just shared, but there's a propensity for people Particularly nowadays, given we're siloed on our social media platforms to to put people into boxes very quickly, uh, yeah. and I'm not a big believer in boxes uh, personally uh, because just because you have a view in in one area doesn't make you that. Uh, it's if you've got a diverse view of the world. Then, uh, but 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 I guess the good thing is, Cameron, uh, that does mean that uh, people are sitting up and taking notice of what what you've got to say, and. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a, that's a really good thing. So, sort of closing off this, this sort of personal journey section, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would have liked me to? And and if so, what, what is it? And what would you have said?
0: Uh, geez, that's a tough one. I don't know if anything's coming to mind right now. Uh, what would you have asked about the personal journey and what would I have said? Um, see my head's super focused on property right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've shared Isn't you've it? shared most of it anyway. I I always sort of open yeah. it just in case there's something you're bursting to share with us that I I haven't got the opportunity Look, to remember. Uh, I yet. might just
0: tease the audience. Yeah. I might just tease the audience that um you should have asked me why do you think we should scrap the superannuation system and give everyone their money back? That's what yeah. probably well, so that, maybe I can not answer it and just Believe it. Okay, I tell you
1: what. Let us sow the seed in this episode, and then we'll talk a little bit about the superannuation system in in part two to put a okay. bit more colour on it. So I look, but I yeah uh, really enjoying the conversation. I'd really want to thank you for taking the time to share the ins and outs of your journey so far, and and I just want to mention to anyone watching or listening in. If you'd like to ask any further questions or leave your thoughts on our great chat so far, just join and jump into the Property Hub Collective interactive Facebook community where you can keep the conversation going with other like-minded, hardworking Aussies. And we now look forward to continuing the conversation in next week's episode where we're going to deep dive into the wonderful world of property and housing economics. So I look forward to seeing you again and and thanks for your time today, Cameron.
0: Stay tuned for for part two of this interview next episode
1: thanks for tuning in to get invested on the property hub podcast channel your home for property investment insights and inspiration and don't leave yet until you've taken the next step towards living by design by getting my award-winning book get invested absolutely free when you sign up at knowhowproperty.com.au or bushymartin.com.au and finally make sure you subscribe to property hub to get your weekly dose of Get Invested Inspiration along with every episode of Realty Talk, Australia's leading property show for red-hot property investing news and insights, direct from industry leaders and influencers. Remember to always get invested in your knowledge and I look forward to seeing you next time.